Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with attorney Francis Carlisle. Francis is a trust and estate attorney practicing in New York City. Her estate planning work for clients includes the preparation of wills and trusts, including trusts for animals. Ms. Carlisle has a BA from Barnard College and an MS from Columbia University and a JD from the University of California at Davis. She is admitted to practice law in New York, New Jersey, Florida, and California. She was one of the original members of the New York Bar City Bar Association's Animal Law Committee. She has organized various bar association conferences on issues concerning animals, including conferences on puppy mills, horse protection issues, and global warming. She has written articles and is a frequent lecturer on the topic of estate planning for the care of companion animals, and she has been a guest lecturer at several New York area law schools. She has appeared on Animal Planet and various other television networks to discuss the importance of estate planning to provide for the continuing care of companion animals. Francis, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So I'm so thrilled. This is a topic, as we were saying in the the pre-show conversation, that's near and dear to my heart because I feel like it's a topic that, as a profession, we don't deal with enough. Can you tell me a little bit about your practice and, and how did you get involved with this passion for helping animals with estate planning? Well, I've always had an interest in helping animals, and one of the reasons that I went to law school is that I thought it would be enable me to be of more help to animals. And when it turned out that I liked the field of estate planning, then I started thinking about how I could best help animals within that specialty. And I discovered that an important and usually neglected part of estate planning is a plan for the continuing care of a client's cats, dogs, and other companion animals. Often when a person dies without a plan for his or her animals, charities which are already overburdened are asked to step in and help these animals, which means that the charities then have fewer resources to use to rescue animals from the streets and from shelters. So do you think it's, and obviously you do, think it's an important component to include pets in an estate plan? Absolutely. The majority of American households have pets, and in most cases, those pets are considered family members. More and more pet owners don't want to leave the care of their pets to chance, and they want to make provisions for the care of their pets and their wills. Pets can end up at a shelter because there's no one willing or able to take the pets after the owner dies. They can even end up on the streets or being handed off to from person to person who, you know, may not want them and may not care for them properly. So estate planning is needed for their protection. And when you work with someone, a pet owner, who's trying to take care, you know, of their pet in case something bad happens, I mean, how does that work? Do they leave money in their will or, I mean, how does that whole process work? 
Okay, well, animals cannot be beneficiaries of money or property. They can't be the direct beneficiaries, of course. But there are really two different ways to provide for the continuing care of an animal after the owner's death. First, you can leave an outright bequest in your will of your pet and funds for the pet's care. And the second is the creation of a trust for the animal, either in your will or in a separate trust document. And I want to just mention, whenever I say will, it also includes the kinds of trusts that some people have that act like wills. They they create a trust which doesn't have to be then probated like a will does, but basically it acts like a will. So either, when I say will, it's, I'm also including that type of estate planning document. And so you're talking, um, just to try and sort of get some nuts and bolts and understanding here, an outright bequest would be like, say, my cousin was going to take on the responsibility for my pets if something were to happen to me. So I would just give my cousin some money in the in the will for the benefit of my of taking my my cats. Yeah, well what you would do would you would you would have a a provision in your will that says I I give my uh my my dog so and so and my cat Fluffy to my cousin Jane and then I, I, um, and I'm also going to give her ten thousand dollars to defray the costs of care. And and always when you do this, uh, if you're going to do the outright bequest, you should have some uh, an alternate or two name because I have found that sometimes when the time comes, uh, that person is unable to take the animal for whatever reason. They may have moved to a place that doesn't allow them, or someone may have developed allergies or something. So you have to have uh, some backup. Uh, in case uh, your cousin can't take the animal. And then if you create a pet trust, that's a separate document from the will. How is that different? Well, a a pet trust offers more protections for the animal. Every state, and and this wasn't the case when I started practice, There there were hardly any, maybe two states had pet trust statutes. Now every state in the union has a pet trust statute, which means that you have the legal right to create a trust in your estate planning documents, which names your animals as beneficiaries. Now think about it. Pets are property, but now they're trust beneficiaries. I mean, that's a, that's a better status and they have to be protected by the trustee. They have to be, uh, the trustee has money for their care. The trustee can find caregivers for where they can live. And, and then if that caregiver for some reason can't take care of the animal, then uh, it can go on to another caregiver, and the trustee's overseeing everything. So it's, it's really a pretty good protection for the pets. And are these trusts, these pet trusts, are they expensive to put together? Well, you know, the attor- your attorney, who's going to draft your will and your other estate planning documents, can also draft a pet trust. Uh, a lot of attorneys are not really up to speed on it, but, you know, it's something that they can all do. You know, there's a, there's a, st- a statute telling them in their state, whatever state it is, that you can create these pet trusts, and it's pretty much you can create them like you tr- would create a trust for children. So certainly uh, your attorney can, can create that pet trust for you. Now, there is a new... Um, uh, uh, something new that just came out where you can create one uh, yourself very inexpensively. There's a Silicon Valley um, guy named Alex Farr, F-A-R-R, and he loves animals, and he decided to use his, some of his expertise and funds to create, um, to help animals. 
And so he created um, a website called MyPetWill.com. That's M-Y-P-E-T-W-I-L-L.com. And if you go to that site for under $20, you can create a pet trust for your pet. And so it really means that, that a lot, you know, a lot of people don't bother with estate planning and particularly they don't bother with estate planning for their pets. But this, this is a cheap way, a very inexpensive way to create a pet trust. So uh, I recommend uh, taking a look at that site. Yeah, that's fantastic, and we'll make sure we get that website. In, yeah, in and one more thing that. is, one more thing is that it's important that a pet trust is useless if it's not funded with money. So whether you create one with an attorney or with the website, uh, it's important to consider how you're going to fund that pet trust, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. Right. I I read various horror stories, sort of about people going to all the work to set up trusts and then they never actually move any assets into that trust. And right, so it really right. doesn't do anybody any good, um, yeah, you know, at yes. the end of the day. People will say, oh, I have a pet trust, and I'll say, how is it funded? And they say, well, I don't know, or I didn't. <laughs> it can be funded for your will. You could leave a legacy. Let's say I lived, leave $30,000 to my pet trust, or it could be um, funded it could be the beneficiary of a life insurance policy, even an IRA. So there's a lot of different ways to fund a pet trust. So it doesn't have to be just cash. No, no, it doesn't have to be just cash. It can be stocks, bonds. And um, I want to talk about another way of funding, which is something that not everybody wants, but it may, for certain situations, it's quite useful. And most people don't think about it. You know, I have some pet owners who have a lot of animals. And they want their animals to remain in the family home and be cared for there until they die. And how can you do that? And, and they may have animals that are going to be impossible to pl- place. Maybe they rescue pit bulls. Maybe they have a lot of feral cats. So in some cases, we put the residents into the pet trust. Now, you can only do this when there's enough money to pay for the expenses of the upkeep of the house and the taxes, and then you have to pay for the care of the animals. And then you hire a caretaker to live there in the house with the animals until the last animal passes away. So this is a this is something that some clients can consider so they don't have to move the many animals uh, and they can remain in the family home. And then occasionally the family home is, is sort of a pricey home, so the the house is sold, and then the pet trust trustee buys, you know, an inexpensive place, maybe out in the country where a caretaker can live with all these, these animals and care for them. So that's just a sort of um, an option. And if you you considering that, then you would need to see an attorney. That would not be something you could do through my pet will, which is more just a standard putting um, cash in to the pet trust. Yeah, I've been involved in a couple of situations that have had that scenario, um, as well mm-hmm. as a, um, a scenario of, say, somebody wanting to donate their their house to a nonprofit, as long as the nonprofit agrees to like care for the cats at the house, you know, until all the cats are deceased, and then that house becomes, you know, the property of that nonprofit, and then they can sell it at that point in time. And there's a lot of communication that has to go back and forth between the two groups because yes. you know, these cats can live 20 years or more, you know, I mean, it's right. a <laughs> right. long process and there's a lot of care and a lot of med- medical costs involved too. 
So sometimes mm-hmm. what might sound like a great thing to a nonprofit organization, they really need to sit down and think things through and make sure that they're protecting themselves too, as well as protecting the cats. Yes, oh, absolutely. They have a strong understanding there. Right, right. And I, I do suggest that as one option to certain clients with, with this situation. Another thing that could be done is the client could create a pet trust and name individual trustees who are going to do all the work. But the charity could be involved in helping, and then the charity would get the house when the um, when the last uh, animal passes away, and the charity could be you know involved in in helping, but not have to do every little thing. Right. So, right. So one scenario that I was involved with, you know, they were getting down to like they had had started out with like twenty cats, and they were down to like the last three or five, and they felt that the cats weren't getting the care that they really needed and they were getting the right medical care but they weren't having social interaction and, and right, that kind of right. thing. and so they actually the trustees went to the court to see if they could seek out a different alternative to have those cats placed in like a hospice foster home through a nonprofit organization mm-hmm. where they would have more skilled care rather than being more like in a house sit- sitting environment they would have someone who was you know, used to dealing with an older cat that had some compromising issues, but they had to go to court. The trustees had to go to court to get things changed. Well, so, I try. You know, I try to. I try to make my pet trust very flexible. I, I don't make them so specific. In, in the in the case of most pet trusts, the trustee would have that option and would not have to go to court. The trustee could just do that. Um, yep. For example, if you put a residence, say you have 20 animals and you put the residence in, when you get down to five or less, it's probably worthwhile to sell the residence and to have different caretakers for those cats. And right. the trustee still would oversee and visit them and make sure they're doing well and move them if they're not doing well. But, it, but you know, it, I think the pet trust needs to be very flexible and give the trustee some some latitude. You know, it shouldn't be so detailed that they have to go to court to change any little thing. Right, right, right. So when the last pet does die and that the funds are are left in the trust, I would assume that there would have to be instructions as to what happens to those funds? Yes. Trusts in general have beneficiaries, which are usually life beneficiaries, and then remaindermen. Every trust has to have a remaindermen, and that's the person or charity to whom whatever's left goes when the life beneficiaries have all died. So when the last cat dies, there's got to be somebody or some charity named as the remainderman. And and sometimes uh, my clients put an animal rescue charity on as the remainderman of the trust. But sometimes the money is all used up before the last animal dies. It just depends how liberally the pet trust is funded. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking here primarily about cats and dogs, and but it, it appears that you've worked with some folks that have, you know, other animals like horses or birds. What are the challenges for those animals, which, you know, are, they can live longer and, you know, their care, horses are incredibly, you know, expensive to take care of. And so what what are your ideas or what experience have you had in those areas? Yeah, there, there are a lot of species that live a long time. You know, there are, I have clients with parrots and there are some species of parrots that can live 80, even 90 years. So the problem with planning for these animals is that the pet may outlive, you know, the trustees and the caretakers that you may have in your pet trust. 
Of course, the court can always appoint new trustees, but you want to make sure your trustees in, in, in every case are not just people that are appointed, but people that really have a concern for and interest in and knowledge about uh, the type of animals that you have. So if you have long-lived pets, one thing uh, I can suggest is that the pet owner try to find a charitable organization which operates a sanctuary for the species of animals that uh, is, is uh, that the pet owner has. And they can leave the animal in a cash legacy to the sanctuary outright. Uh, you know, for example, there are bird sanctuaries around the country. There are horse sanctuaries. But uh, the pet owner should always visit and determine if it's a good facility and it's been in existence for a while and it's well-funded and likely to be around for the life of the animal. And the, the pet owner needs to leave a substantial amount. You know, as you said, horses are very expensive. So to not overburden the sanctuary, you've got to leave quite a bit of money for the care of that animal for life because those, it's a long life. With some of my clients uh, that have these kind of animals, I do what I call a belt and suspenders trust. I mean, I, meaning that I create a pet trust for the life of, let's say, they're birds that are going to live a long time. I create a pet trust, and I name trustees and alternate trustees and so on. But I put provisions in there to make it very flexible. I say that the trustee can take these birds to a sanctuary, a bird sanctuary, and they can continue to uh, they have the flexibility to continue to pay for the animal at the sanctuary or they can let the sanctuary take the animals and give the remainder of the money in the trust to the sanctuary. So there's a flexibility for the trustee depending on what happens and how the birds are doing. The trustee can keep the birds with caregivers in homes or can take the birds to a sanctuary depending on what's happening at the time. And, you know, as I said before, the most important thing that the pet owner can do is to select the right trustees. You you want to select someone who's not only competent, but someone who has a real concern for your animals or for at least animals of, of the same species that you have. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. Let's make helping cats in your community easier. Join me and over 10 exceptional leaders for the first ever online cat conference. This virtual conference will be held January 26th through 28th, 2018, and will feature speakers like Brian Cordes of Neighborhood Cats, Hannah Shaw, the Kitten Lady, Katie Lisnick of the Humane Society of the United States, Nell Thompson from Getting to Zero in Australia, and many, many more. This is an affordable opportunity to learn from nationally and internationally known leaders in the field of community cat management and care. To find out more details, please go to www.communitycatspodcast.com and sign up today to register. Fees go up on December 1st. Let's make helping cats easier in your community. So, you know, we were talking about estate planning today, but are there things we should worry about in the case of us being hospitalized and, you know, making sure that there's somebody around to take care of our of our pets, especially in the scenario where we may have a lot of animals in our home? Oh, yes. This is so important for everyone who has an animal to do. Pet owners need to, to make arrangements for the care of their pets. If the pet owner is in a situation 
where he or she can't care for the pet. For example, the pet owner is hospitalized or goes into a nursing home. Someone must be available to get into the residence to feed and care for the animals. Uh, you know, someone has to have a key or permission from the landlord or, or so on. I, I had one client who I was doing, had a lot of little birds, parakeets and so on, and she was doing a plan, and I brought this up to her, but before she had made arrangements with anyone, uh, she fell and ended up in the hospital, and uh, her house was all locked up. But the veterinar- her veterinarian was contacted, and I believe he, he went in through a window, and he was able to save the birds, but that's not ideal. Mm. So you need to really have that set up. Everyone needs to have, have an arrangement where someone can get in there right away to feed and care for the, care for the animals. And it's also important for all pet owners to execute a power of attorney appointing an agent to handle their financial matters uh, in case they become incapacitated in the future. And I add a specific provision to the power of attorney in New York that I use, which states that the agent has the power to and should use the pet owner's funds to pay for the care of the pet owner's pets so that there's no question that this is the intent of the pet owner. But even without that provision, uh, the agent should have the um, authority to take care of the pets and to pay for them. Again, get an agent who has some interest in your animals and understands them. There are people that don't like animals and and they don't really understand uh, the needs of the animals. And then I also recommend to my clients that they carry a card in their wallet stating who to call in case of an emergency to care for their animals. If there's an accident or something like that, the police will look through the wallet and, and notify any emergency contacts. And, and again, also for an elderly person living alone, a note giving the name of the person to be called to care for the animals in case of emergency can be placed in a prominent place in, in the house, such as near the front door, so that if there is an emergency and the pet owner is taken to the hospital or has died, the person selected to care for the animals can be easily contacted. Otherwise, the local animal control people might be called and the animals taken to the pound. And also for um, elderly clients living alone, uh, maybe one of those buttons I've fallen and I can't get up buttons or, or uh, one of the services that calls every day to see if, uh, see if everything's okay, something like that might be useful to have, particularly when you have animals. In addition, um, the pet owner can work with an estate planning attorney to make short-term arrangements for the care of pets, and this is for the period after the pet owner dies but before the will is probated because probate can take some time, and somebody has to take care of those animals, you know, right after death. In some cases, the pet owner makes an agreement, a contract with a person to take over the care of the animals after death but before the will is probated, and then they get paid um, once the, w- the will is probated. And even after the will is probated and the executor appointed, pets must be cared for until the animal goes to the person that's taking the animal in under a bequest or to the trustee of the pet trust. The executor is responsible for the care of during that period, and so um uh, I'll emphasize this again, selecting an executor who has concern for your animals is extremely important. That's a great point. So many of our listeners, not only do they have, you know, quite a few cats of their own, but they also feed a lot of 
cats either in their own backyards or community cats. And for many people, they're like their children. I mean, they give them names and they see them every day and they feed them 365 days a year. What is it that that they can do to help ensure that if something were to happen to them, that they, you know, that these cats wouldn't suffer? Right. That's very important. And and um, there's a, a, a number of ways to help feral cats and feral cat colonies. One thing is you could leave a disposition in your will to a charity that has the care of feral cats as a main purpose. And you can put conditions on your bequest. For example, if you're a volunteer who cares for a colony and you're worried about who will feed these cats if you pass away, you can leave funds to a feral cat charity, uh, local if possible, and specify in the will that some or all of the funds be used by the charity to find a volunteer or even pay someone to continue feeding the colony. And hopefully, uh, if you're feeding a colony, you have some connection to a feral cat charity so that if you go into the hospital or you're temporarily unable to feed them, they can send um, another person to make sure that that colony continues to be be fed. And um, I, did, I just have a few uh, things to say about uh, rescues. A lot of people, um, they may feed a colony, but they also uh, take in animals that's from maybe from the colony or other stray animals, and they you know, they're busy uh, rescuing and placing cats, and they never get around to any estate planning for any of the cats. For their, They have some of their own cats. They have some cats that they're, they plan to find homes for. But what happens, I just want to give you a scenario of what might happen if you have no no plan at all for the care of these cats. You know, actually, most people die without a will or other plan. Uh, and in these cases, if there's no will, or no document that acts like a will, family members inherit your residence and your other assets under the intestacy law. And family members then have the right to sell the residence. They can get rid of the cats. And it's my experience that at least one of the family members inheriting will want that residence sold right away in order to get their share of the assets as soon as possible, and they really don't care what happens to the animals living there. So it's very important if you have pets, either your own pets or rescue pets or some ferals you've taken in, you should have an estate plan for the continuing care of the animals. And and the pet trusts that I talk about can be used for not only your own pets, but it can be used for your for your rescues that are in your home. And again, I mentioned putting a residence in the trust. If you're if you're running a rescue operation out of your home and you have lots of cats coming and going and lots of your own cats that you've decided to keep, then putting the residence into a pet trust might be be a wise thing to do. And and or you can, as Stacy just mentioned, you can leave your animals and the residents outright to establish animal charity with the condition that the charity care for the cats for their lives. And you have to really make sure the charity wants to do that and is up up to doing that. And um, I I want to go back to um, just talk a bit about charitable organizations that either are for the purpose of helping feral cats or they are for the for rescuing homeless animals and placing them. As you know, uh, charitable organizations have tax exempt status and they're governed um, by a board. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm not uh, uh, I don't have a specialty in in 
in a charitable corporation law. But I would say that one of the most important actions that a board can take is to develop a good succession plan so that there is a way for successors to take over quickly if one or more of the key people are not able to act. A lot of the charities, uh, animal charities, the small ones, are, are sort of one-woman charities. But, you know, they need to work to find people to take over in case the one person is is not able to act anymore. So it's one of the most important things that charity can do is to have a good succession plan and find people to take take over if needed. And another thing that officers and directors of a charity should do is to have good program planning and to keep to their mission. It's important for directors to plan to make sure there's going to be sufficient money in the future to take care of animals that the charity is helping. You know, as we know, when the economy takes a downturn, contributions go way down. Charities need to have a considerable amount of money squirreled away for the lean times, and they should try not to become overextended, which, of course, is easily uh, more easily said than done. And a final thing on this subject, charities with similar purposes are often competitive with each other, but I think it would be beneficial to have a close relationship with another charity and have an arrangement to help each other in times of crisis. Some charities are even merging to be more um, effective. You know, we have to be realistic. Even the most well-run charities with dedicated officers, directors, and volunteers can't perform miracles and can't take care of every animal that needs care. But if charities do the proper planning and more individuals do the estate planning for the care of the animals they have, then more animals can be helped and there will be less burden uh, on these charities. I agree with you 100% on your commentary about charities and and, um, sustainability and succession planning. I think that's potentially the million-dollar question. I feel yeah. there's going to be a lot, a lot of turnover. There's, you know, charities over the last 30 years, a lot of small charities have sprung up and developed. And I think that, that we are entering into a period where there's going to be quite a bit of turnover. I've also mm-hmm. participated in merging nonprofits as well as spinning off nonprofits within the organization that I ran for 20 years. So I've I've mm. sent, sent groups on their way. They were a program of ours for like three years, and then they became their own 501c3. And then I've also had two nonprofits merge in with our organization. And um, and then now I'm working with an organization that was, was dormant for about 10 years, and we've resuscitated the 501c3 shell, and it's become active again. So that's been kind of an interesting oh. idea where it sort of – because of certain players moving and life changing, it, it went quiet for a while, and then mm-hmm. there was a, a purpose for it, and it's, the shell was picked back up, so we didn't have to create a whole new 501c3. We've just sort of recycled one with a very similar mission and purpose to what this new group is is doing. Oh, that um, makes it so a lot easier. Was- yeah, that's yeah, good. You don't have to do all the paperwork and everything. So that's been been pretty fun and exciting. But you talk about charities and, and contributions and stuff, and, and way not way back when, but several years ago, there was a story about Leona Helmsley, and when she passed away, she left money for her dog, and, and I believe charities were somewhat involved in that, in that fight. Would you be willing to share that story with our listeners today? 
Oh, sure. Um, yeah, Leona Helmsley, uh, you know, uh, died back in, was 2007 or 2008, and there was a lot of publicity. It was mostly bad publicity because she left $12 million for the care of her little dog. And um, even though that amount was later reduced to $2 million, it's still a huge amount for the care of one animal. You know, most people want to provide for the care of their pets, but they leave a modest, reasonable amount for that purpose. After um, Leona died, the news was full of stories about her estate plan for her little dog named Trouble. And that was good and bad, and it was good because it brought attention to the existence of trust for the care for our dogs and uh, and other animals. But mostly it was bad because it was such an unusual plan and one with so many problems. So I'll tell you about what went wrong with Leona's plan for Trouble. I got a chance to review her will, which left the $12 million to a, to a separate pet trust in a separate document, and I also reviewed her pet trust. And from looking at these documents, I saw three issues with the plan for trouble. First, when providing for the care of an animal, the pet owner, as I said, should leave a reasonable amount for that care. $12 million was way too much. And after Leona died and there was all this publicity, Trouble started receiving death and dog napping threats and was in such danger that the little dog had to be hustled out of her Connecticut home, flown under an assumed name, and taken to a secret location to be cared for. It was reported that there were over 40 credible threats against the dog, and it caused a lot of extra expense to the pet trust because after that, between $100,000 to $200,000 a year had to be spent for round-the-clock security for the dog and the caretaker. And that amount was much more than any other expense for the dog. Um, upon application to the surrogates court by the Helmsley estate executors, the court reduced the amount to go to the pet trust from $12 million to $2 million. Did the executors do this because of the public outcry or because the court felt that the trust was overfunded? No, actually they did it because one of the executors realized that a mistake had been made and after Leona died that funding the pet trust with $12 million would create a huge estate tax liability. If the pet trust was funded with $12 million, there would be about a $5 million federal estate tax bill. And if the pet trust was funded with $2 million, there would be um, an estate tax bill of zero because of, there was a federal estate tax exemption. So that's why they reduced it. And then the second problem I saw with Leona's will is that she bequeathed trouble to her brother, who certainly didn't want the dog. And this is always a, a risk. <laughs> it was a little bit of a snappy dog, I heard, uh, but very cute. Uh, as this is always a risk, when I draft a pet trust, I put the animal into the trust. As the trustee has the fiduciary duty to safeguard property in the trust, meaning the trustee must make sure the dog is cared for and safe. And I can do this because animals um, are still considered property under the law, so they can be placed into a trust. So, But actually, you can't blame Leona's brother for not taking a dog as receiving death threats. But I heard that the dog was well cared for by a friend and innkeeper in Florida uh, until the dog's death in 2010. So the dog uh, was, was taken care of properly. The final problem I saw in Leona's will is that it states that when trouble dies, her remains are to be kept and then 
buried next to Leona's remains uh, are put in the Helmsley Mausoleum that she had. However, the cemetery law does not permit animal remains to be buried in human cemeteries. I have uh, several pet owners who want their ashes buried next to their pets' remains, and, and this can be done by purchasing plots at certain pet cemeteries that allow this, such as uh, there's a place in Westchester County, New York, where you can even have an elaborate uh, mausoleum and statues and so on. Well, and this is not a plan that most people want, and it wouldn't have worked for Leona, who wanted to be next to her husband, Harry. It is an option for certain people who want their ashes to be interred with the remains of a, of a beloved pet. And I'll just mention one final thing. The, in 2011, and here in New York, the Division of Cemeteries realized they were losing business to the pet cemeteries, and they didn't like it. And they issued a regulation banning the burial of human remains or ashes in a pet cemetery. But there was such a public outcry that this regulation was revised, and now human remains can be buried in pet cemeteries again. Hmm. It's very interesting. You know, Francis, this, this is, I'm learning so much today. I'm, just, I'm <laughs> absorbing as much as I can. Uh, oh, okay. um, but but in, in closing, what is the most important thing that, that you could tell people who love their pets? Well, the most important thing is to take the first step. Make some plans for the continuing care of your animals. Don't wait. You may be very busy. You may be help, helping a lot of animals and working and doing everything, but but this is something that's important to have it have it done, taken care of, and uh, and then you can rest easy that if anything happens to you, you've got a whole plan that your animals are going to be taken care of. And I, I just want to mention that I, I am retiring, so I'm, I'm not taking on any any uh, matters. And um, any lawyer, if you're going to go to a lawyer for estate planning, any lawyer should be able to create a pet trust for you or do some planning for your pets. A lot of um, attorneys are not all that up on it because it hasn't been a common thing. So I'm glad to um, to speak to the attorneys directly to give them advice if they if if they need it, or, you know, or point them toward the statute or give them samples even if they want. So um, I, I'm glad to do that uh, because I, I want this to become a common. I want everybody to have a plan for their animals. Let's not burden the charities that that have to try and go in and take the animals out of the house and then they don't have room for more animals. Let's try to, everybody try to have a plan that has an animal. I think that, that sounds, that sounds great. Francis, I have one last follow-up question because it's a burning question that's in my mind with uh, sure. going back to the community cats. One thing that I've encountered in my estate planning is the concept of a side letter. If somebody is feeding, I know people who feed 20 different colonies is it beneficial to just even have a side letter that lists the locations of where they feed just to have it in there with your important documents from a yes. communication yes. standpoint? Uh, that, that's a great idea. Absolutely. You should have detail about that in your plan. Uh, hopefully, if you're feeding colony, you'll, you'll make something in your estate plan connected with that, as I, as I discussed. And, and you should have a, it's good to associate with a charity if you can so that they have the records of it and can send one of their volunteers if you're not able to or or something like that but um yeah you should have a lot of have a lot of detail about the, you can have as much detail as you want about 
each animal, you know, what their needs are and so on, if yep. you know, and the descriptions of them. And this is something that you can do without an attorney. You can have lots of information. You can do a memo with lots of information about the colony and change that from time to time. Have a local charity have a copy of that and also have your attorney have a copy of that. That's great. Well, Francis, I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. I, Like I said, I feel like this is a, a topic that we really don't speak about enough. It's sort of hidden under the rug. I think we're all very shy about it, or we just don't even want to think about it because we just don't know how to answer the questions of who would do what I'm doing right now. And so it's something we all need to face, we need to address and be able to to think about so we can protect the cats in our houses, the cats, our pets in our houses, as well as the community cats that we take care of. So I want to thank you again so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show and good luck with your retirement. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me on and thank you for all the good work that you do. The Community Cats podcast will soon be a year old with over 200 episodes profiling amazing people who are all making a difference in the lives of community cats. If you would like to support the show, but not be a sponsor, feel free to contribute to our efforts by going to www.communitycatspodcast.com and follow the donate link. Help us to continue to provide excellent programming. 